0: everyone. Welcome back to Passing Judgment, a podcast about politics, the law, and a lot of things in between. I'm your host, Boyle Law School Professor Jessica Levinson, and I am joined by the show's co-host and producer, Joe Armstrong. Today, we are doing another legal roundup we're going to talk about the conclusion of the trial of former officer Derek Chauvin in the death of George Floyd. We are recording this about 90 minutes after the jury got the case after closing arguments ended. We're going to talk about a new suit filed by a supporter of former President Trump, Mike Lindell, the CEO of My Pillow against Dominion Voting Systems. Yes, a new suit regarding those two parties. We're gonna talk about the resolution of, or not resolution as it were, of a challenge regarding mail-in ballots in Pennsylvania from the 2020 election. Yes perhaps the last 2020 election challenge that uh, tried to make its way up to the Supreme Court and ultimately was unsuccessful. And then speaking of the Supreme Court, we're going to talk about some new proposals to reform the court and whether or not those have any legs. With that, my friend and co-host, Joe, let's get started first the big legal news of the day. Can you get us up to speed on the trial of Officer Chauvin and tell us where we are?
1: Absolutely, Jessica. Thank you. Yes, biggest news story of the day, legal or otherwise, perhaps. The prosecution and the defense have made their closing arguments in the trial of the Derek Chauvin trial and the death of George Floyd. All told, there were almost three weeks of testimony. they wrapped up just mere minutes ago, as Jessica said. The prosecution put 38 witnesses that included bystanders, medical experts, the Minneapolis police chief, George Floyd's girlfriend, and others on the stand. The defense responded with seven witnesses calling active and former police officers, a use of force expert, one eyewitness, a former medical examiner, as well as others. And now with closing arguments concluded, the jury will be sequestered. Jessica, can you tell us exactly how that works?
0: Sequestering a jury is actually very rare. It means that you're separating the jury, you're cutting them off, you're putting them in a hotel room, and that's because you're worried about the idea that they might either accidentally or intentionally get information that wasn't part of the evidence in the trial. And it really only happens in cases like this, meaning cases that make national and even international news where there's so much news coverage, there's so many people talking about the cases that it makes some sense. But it's very rare. And it it is that one in a million cases where it even makes sense to say to a group of people, Uh, You weren't allowed to talk about the only thing that you have in common for the last three weeks, meaning being members of this jury. Now talk about it and do that in a hotel room. So at this point, we don't know if it's going to be three hours or three weeks until we have a verdict.
1: And there is a lot at stake here. I've been reading several news stories about how the city of Minneapolis and other cities around the country have Boarded up stores. Again, they're very, very deeply concerned about civil unrest in the aftermath of this trial, depending on what the verdict might be. So, can you please run down the specific charges facing Chauvin and what do you think the jury will decide in each of them?
0: Yes, absolutely. There are three charges here. I think we did a prior episode about the various charges that did, didn't originally, and then almost didn't make it. But uh, Chauvin is facing three different charges second degree murder third degree murder, and second degree manslaughter. I think the most important thing for listeners to know is that all of these involve unintentional killings. So the prosecution does not actually have to prove intent here, which obviously lowers the threshold for the prosecution. Now I'm going to read really briefly, I promise everybody, directly from the Minnesota criminal code here. So first, second degree murder. What the code says is, Whoever does either of the following is guilty of unintentional murder in the second degree and may be sentenced to imprisonment for not more than 40 years. One option is causes the death of a human being without intent to affect the death of any person while committing or attempting to commit a felony offense other than criminal sexual conduct in the first or second degree with force or violence or a drive by shooting. Now, What does this mean in plain English? It means that you commit or attempt to commit a felony which results in a death. Now, what would that felony be in this case? It would be unreasonable use of force, which would be an assault. And George Floyd died. So what we're looking at, again, is the felony would be assault. We would be looking at whether or not the death was substantially caused by the assault and that could give rise to, again, a charge of second-degree murder, which is an unintentional killing. Now, third-degree murder. This also deals with an unintentional killing. And the code provides whoever without intent to affect the death of any person causes the death of another by perpetrating an act imminently dangerous to others and evidencing a depraved mind without regard for human life, is guilty of murder in the third degree and may be sentenced to imprisonment for not more than 25 years. So the key language here, again, is causing the death of another by perpetrating an act that's imminently dangerous and evidencing a depraved mind. Now, this was the original murder charge, the second degree murder charge if memory serves, was added later on after a public outcry was added by um, the attorney general. Now, finally, second degree manslaughter. Again, the prosecution does not need to show intent. Here, the operative language is a person who causes the death of another by any of the following means is guilty of manslaughter in the second degree and may be sentenced to imprisonment for not more than 10 years or to payment of a fine of not more than $20,000 or both here's the key section, by the person's culpable negligence, whereby the person creates an unreasonable risk and consciously takes the chances of causing death or great bodily harm to another. So what does this all boil down to? Did Officer Chauvin use excessive force? Was it a substantial cause of George Floyd's death? And can the prosecution prove this beyond a reasonable doubt. So one word on the closing here is that the prosecution really emphasized this is a simple case, everybody. Trust your eyes. Trust your ears. We don't need to complicate things. The defense, understandably, is trying to complicate this. They're trying to complicate the causation, saying we have to look at George Floyd's pre-existing conditions, at his drug use. And what they really are trying to do, of course, is get at least one juror to say, I have a reasonable doubt. That's why they started their closing arguments with reasonable doubt. And with that, Joe, you know, that, that's all we know until we hear from the jury.
1: Thank you very much for those summaries, Jessica. We will be watching this very closely and we will be talking about it on an upcoming podcast. I'm sure the big question on my mind, Jessica, and on a lot of people's minds is when will we see that verdict and when will we see that episode? Is this a matter of hours, days, weeks, years, millennia? What are we looking at here? Uh,
0: We don't know. I mean, everybody's least favorite answer, right? So once it goes to the jury, um, if the prosecution really convinced these jurors, uh, tomorrow morning, they could wake up, have breakfast, and say, Your Honor, we have a verdict. Um, I suspect that given the weight of the case and all of the other considerations, it's not going to be just a few hours. But I, I don't, you know, based on not that much, I don't think that this will drag out. If it drags out, it me- it's good for the defense. The longer it goes, I suspect the better it is for the defense because it means they're trying to convince at least one person that, um, in fact, they can vote to convict. So time will tell. I think that is probably time now to pivot to our next big legal issue, which is Mike Lindell, the CEO of MyPillow, Dominion Voting Systems. And Joe, you're going to get us up to date on the original suit, this now recent suit that was just filed today, And then I'll talk a little bit about where I think these cases are going.
1: Thank you, Jessica. Let's do. This story started in the aftermath of months of false assertions about the security of the 2020 election made by then-President Donald Trump. Dominion Voting Systems is a company that makes electronic voting machines and the associated software that runs on those. Dominion is based in Toronto, Canada, and Denver, Colorado. In February, in the aftermath of that election cycle, Dominion sued the CEO of My Pillow Incorporated, Mike Lindell, for 1.3 billion dollars, citing defamation and deceptive trade practices. Dominion's original suit states that Lindell and his pillow company profited from making multiple false conspiracy theories about the 2020 election. That lawsuit accuses Lindell of spreading those lies, quote, because the lie sells pillows as well as alleging that my pillow sales increased 30 to 40% as a result of the false narrative of that stolen election. Basically Dominion is accusing Lindell of damaging Dominion's reputation and that's worthy of a lawsuit. Worthy of note here is that Dominion also sued Trump lawyer and former New York mayor Rudy Giuliani. Trump attorney Sidney Powell and Fox News on similar grounds. Now, fast forward to today, this morning, as of today, which is Monday, Lindell announced a $1.6 billion countersuit against Dominion. Although, in an interview with CNBC, MyPillow's lawyer Andrew Parker denied that MyPillow's lawsuit is a countersuit, instead framing it as a free speech issue and attempting to draw a distinction between Lindell's free speech rights and his pillow company. Along with this new lawsuit, MyPillow also filed a motion to dismiss the original defamation suit filed by Dominion. Now, Jessica, what do you think of these suits? Will either of them be successful? And what are the actual goals of these suits?
0: Oh, my gosh. Great question. So let's take the first suit first, which is Dominion voting systems in this really big defamation suit against Lindell. And The answer is I think that this defamation suit actually stands on fairly strong ground. Now, for defamation, as we know, you have to have a communication that involves a false statement of fact uh, that causes an injury, typically a reputational injury, and the ability to show damages. In this case, there's really nothing to these wild conspiracy theories that Lindell has uttered with respect to Dominion voting systems. And he said them as if they were, at least from my perception, statements of fact. And uh, certainly one can see that they would cause reputational damage to Dominion voting systems. And so I think there's a there there. I'm not saying it will be successful, but I think there really is a there there when it comes to that defamation suit. I don't, however, have the same feeling when it comes to this suit regarding the alleged violation of the First Amendment. So first things first with respect to the second suit, which is that it's filed as a so-called 1983 action in federal court. A 1983 action means that it's the mechanism by which you can allege a harm of federal law. And it's a suit where you sue somebody because they acted, quote, under color of state law. So one of the most common types of 1983 suits is a suit, a Um, against a police officer, for instance, for excessive force. See our first discussion above. And in this case, I think it's a stretch to say that Dominion voting systems, because they were helping with elections, was acting under color of state law. When it comes to private corporations or private citizens and trying to sue them under 1983. One, it's unusual. And two, you really have to show that they're conspiring with state officials or local officials. And then in addition, even if you could get past that 1983 issue, we still have the idea of you know a First Amendment violation, which again, I think a non-frivolous defamation suit is not a violation of anybody's First Amendment rights. So again, I think the defamation suit, it's a real suit, a huge amount of money. Uh, It's almost mind boggling how much money is at issue, but that's the suit to watch. The question in the other suit, I think, is whether or not there'll be sanctions for even filing that First Amendment suit in the first place. This brings us uh, or keeps us, actually, in things related to the 2020 election. And I think it brings us to mail-in ballots and mail-in ballot deadlines uh, from Pennsylvania. And Joe, do you want to talk to us about what the Supreme Court did not decide today?
1: (laughs) Indeed, I do, Jessica, but before we move on, I just have to make a side note that a 1983 action sounds like an Atari game that I would have played when I was a young boy, when I was supposed to have been doing homework. But yes, the news out of the Supreme Court today is that the court has declined to take up a case from a group of Pennsylvania Republicans mounting a challenge to charges in the state's election rules. This unsigned ruling is the latest in a number of lawsuits filed by Republicans and Trump loyalists in the aftermath of the 2020 election, nearly all of which have failed. We've discussed most of them on this show. How is this specific case different from previous legal action about that 2020 election, Jessica, and what is its potential impact in future elections?
0: Yeah, I mean this case is not different than the other election law cases in this uh related to the 2020 election in the sense that the Supreme Court has said basically about all of them, nope, not it, we don't want it, we don't want to hear it and they're you know we do not want to be involved in this. Now, this case actually I think did legitimately involved the only real kind of open legal question. So the argument here is that the Pennsylvania Supreme Court exceeded its authority when it extended out deadlines, ballot deadlines, because of the COVID-19 pandemic. The issue is that the Constitution says state legislatures can determine the time, place, and manner of elections. A lot of people assume that the word legislatures means more than just Lawmakers. It also means election officials. It also can, in this case, for instance, mean state Supreme Court. Now, others have argued, no, we have to read this really narrowly. Legislatures just means lawmakers, just means legislators. And so that is still an open question. We won't have an answer to that, at least with respect to this particular case. And this probably now brings us to our last topic, which is not a specific case regarding the Supreme Court, but the Supreme Court more generally and whether or not we will see real Supreme Court reform. So Joe, do you want to talk to us a little bit about what the pending proposals are?
1: Yeah, just a wee bit of background. The topic of reforming the Supreme Court comes up from time to time, from election cycle to election cycle. And the latest is a pair of attempts, one in the form of a bipartisan commission formed by President Biden, and the other is new legislation introduced by congressional Democrats. Let's start with the commission, Jessica. What is the goal of this commission and how realistic are the proposed changes?
0: So the goal of the commission, a cynic would say, would be to give President Biden cover. Because let's remember why we're talking about Supreme Court reform. We're talking about Supreme Court reform because of basically three things or three people, uh, Neil Gorsuch, Brett Kavanaugh, and Amy Coney Barrett. And it's a little flip to say that, but let's talk about the background of how those three individuals got on the court. It's not just that they are appointed by President Trump— because he was the president and he has the power to appoint all federal judges, not just Supreme Court justices. It's let's remember whose seat Neil Gorsuch filled. It was Justice Antonin Scalia. And he passed away in February of 2016. That was about, what, 10 months before the election, before the 2016 election and Senator Mitch McConnell held that seat open he did not hold hearings for now attorney general Merrick Garland and there were you know discussions about do we reform the do we change the process of how we uh nominate and confirm supreme court justices then there was the nomination of Brett Kavanaugh where a lot of people felt like those confirmation hearings left a lot to be desired. They thought that his response to questions about his past was unbecoming of a Supreme Court justice. And then, of course, there was the nomination of Justice uh, Amy Coney Barrett a few days after Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away in September of 2020. Now, at the... This point, four years later, Senator Mitch McConnell said, we are absolutely holding hearings and we will fill the seat. And he did. So some of the questions came up because of how recent vacancies were filled. Uh, Some of the questions are fair. Some of the questions are not fair. I think what Democrats are also realizing is that this is going to be a very conservative court for a long time. And look, we're talking about a situation where a president who was duly elected, but did not win the popular vote, nominated a third of the Supreme Court, not to mention about 200 other federal judges. And the question is, you know, does this work well? So one of the big issues in the 2020 election, at least around September, October, was uh, should we expand the number of seats on the Supreme Court, Uh, basically to try and kind of insulate us, so to speak, from Uh, The Trump appointees. And President Biden kind of punted and said, I'll look at it, I'll think about it. And this commission, which is full of absolute academic luminaries, and really, really well respected people is supposed to look at a bunch of different issues, like, do we expand the number of seats on the court? Should we change? Should we try and actually have constitutional change where we don't have lifetime appointments where we stagger terms so that every president gets two appointments. So everything is open for them. I will say I think it's going to be really, really hard to implement real change, but it's a, it's a group where you can't take anything away from their, uh, their resumes. It's a really well-qualified group. And then that, does that bring us to the legislation?
1: It does. How about this new proposed legislation? Are any of those ideas more likely to foment change in the court?
0: No. (laughs) So the legislation deals only with the idea of expanding the number of justices from 9 to 13, which you could do by legislation. You don't have to change the Constitution. And I think this is dead on arrival and not just f- for political reasons, but I think there are also some people who are left of center, some Democrats who say, let's be careful about this. Yes, it might feel good in the short term in the sense that you could now have more liberal justices. But look, there will be another Republican president and there could be another Senate very soon that's dominated by Republicans? Do you want even more potential vacancies in that situation? So I do think that we need to be really circumspect about this idea of increasing the number of Supreme Court seats. With that, I have a feeling I have exhausted everybody's desire to hear me talk about the Supreme Court. So Joe, I think that that is a wrap. Thank you for listening. Thank you to all of our listeners. We love having these conversations with you. I've been doing a little bit more on social media, uh, both on Twitter and on Instagram. And you can find the podcast on Twitter at Pass Judgment Pod, on Instagram at Passing Judgment Pod. You can find Joe across the socials at In Depth Day, me at Levinson Jessica on both Twitter and Instagram. And Joe, with that, are we done?
1: We are done, Jessica. I can't wait to get back to Action 1983, my high score. I'm about to flip that game. Thank you, as always, to each and every one of our listeners. We love it when you comment. We love it when you rate us. We love it when you reach out and tell us what you think about the things that we're covering and what you might want to hear in the future. We do, really do love sharing these conversations with you. We look forward to telling you about many, many more legal and political stories in the future, and we hope each and every one of you have a wonderful day.